Hello and welcome to The Film File, Just The Reviews. Now, for those who aren't familiar with The Film File, each week we cover all the upcoming news, all the views, all the topics of hot debate running around the cinema industry and the movie industry, whilst also reviewing one or two films and providing our neat things. So we've decided that what we're going to do is bundle together every now and then a collection of just the reviews in these little packages for the people who don't want to be listening to news from a year and a half ago, two years ago. They want to know just what we thought of films and you'll get a feel for the show. So if you're new to the show, this is a great jump on point. You'll get to know myself and Lee and Scott. You'll get to know how we view films, how we talk about films and you'll get to see how our review style evolves over time. This first episode will be focusing on the first bunch of reviews from our first five episodes. So we'll be talking about Hobbs and Shaw, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, It Chapter 2, Ad Astra, Ready or Not, and Joker. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so, review. We need a jingle. We're going to have to get a jingle to go in there. <laughs> um, we both need to see um, Hobbs and Shaw, uh, which is uh, an extension of the Fast and Furious uh, um, series of films. And you're, you're not versed in the Fast and I'm Furious I'm not. Films, I know of Fast and Furious by the fact that it was Point Break with Street Racing. And we've come a long way from Point Break with Street Racing to, to the film we've got now. We have a universe, which is interestingly, um, that Chris Morgan, who's, who's behind the, these films, has, has created. Surreptitiously, maybe, but it, there is a universe out there. And Hobbs and Shaw is, the first, is my entry point. I stayed away from them. I'm not much of a petrol head. So that that aspect and and kind of and no disrespect to anybody who's in that audience, they weren't my audience. They weren't my films, and they weren't my audience. I I I, I um, the whole Paul Walker thing is that he was a, a, a an OKHB actor uh, and everything that went with him. And it was very tragic that, that what happened to him. But you know, he, it's all part of a of a subcult connected to these films that I I just don't feel a part of. That's to take nothing away from it before Twitter starts tearing me a new one. <laughs> I have nothing against them. They just didn't appeal to me. However, we went to see Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw. You want a war? You've got one. Showtime. You want to tell me just what we're dealing with here? Look at me. Bulletproof. Superhuman. I'm Black Superman. We're going for a ride! Myself, I come from the aspect of I've seen all the Fast and Furious films. Um, I've been involved in it since the beginning. And again, I'm not really a petrol head, but I embraced the cheese factor of a lot of them. The first film wasn't very cheesy. Like you say, it was point break with street racing. It was very brutal, very gritty, down to earth. It was realistic. And then the second film was garbage because um, Vin Diesel wasn't back. Paul Walker was. And like you say, Paul Walker, he, he can't carry a film on his own. No, he was, he, he was not a leading a good man. looking guy, but he was he was great as great as an ensemble. However, it got to the third film, Tokyo Drift. And I loved the hell out of that. There's something about um, the, the street racing like um, by the, the casual art of driving sideways everywhere that comes out of Japan that I absolutely adore. And I could have watched that film over and over again and never got bored. 
But everyone's everyone like turned against the franchise at that point. Like, well, we don't know what's going on. That was on. the this Halloween three of the. We've added new things in, and this isn't part of it. And loads of people, fans of the series, like at that point, were like, well, this isn't proper Fast and Furious film. Joke was on them when later on in the franchise that got brought in. Oh, really? As like part of the continuity. Oh, that's cool. It was set I like before that. the events of um, the previous films and worked from there. I know, I didn't know that. I'm, I'm glad they didn't did much malign it. So, uh, but that that's all because of Chris Morgan, because he came on board on Tokyo Drift. That's when he started writing, screen, helping with the screenplay. And he's been involved in every film since. So he knew what he wanted to weave in and what he wanted to weave back. And the timeline gets a bit weird um, if you put it all through. But from that point onwards, you get to the fourth film and the opening sequence is so ridiculously over the top. You have to just sit back and go, this is not the same franchise, but you know what? I'm going to enjoy the ride as it goes along. And from that point onwards, we ended up with like tanks racing on freeways. We ended up with uh, parachuting vehicles out of like backs of planes. We ended with a runway that apparently was about 400 miles long, which is how long <laughs> it took. All the laws of physics and everything went out the window because it all became about the spectacle. And it was interesting to see the critical reviews. That the first film did well, then it bottomed off like for the second and the third. And then as the critics started to embrace the silliness, the reviews got better. And the last couple of films have been like in the 70s and 80s on oh, Rotten Tomatoes. So a lot more critics are just going in going, you know what? Let's just accept this for the summer blockbuster mindless action that it is. And it has got a bit of heart, but it's a lot of cheese. And if you can embrace the cheese, the franchise is worth visiting. But you get to Hobbs and Shaw. Which is, which just so, I do talking about the timeline, I understand. So this is a sidestep within the universe. This is the uh, uh, Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad of, of uh, the DC universe uh, and the Ant-Man of, uh, of, of Marvel, if I, to, to find a reference point of it. So we've got two characters who, who came to adversarial, I believe, in the yeah. original versions. Um, right uh, up until the, like, the last one of the Fast and Furious films. But by the end of them, like they were part of the family because it's always up family. Family. Yeah, there was a big, big reference thing. to family. And in like this all one. their disputes and bickering had stopped. But we forget that for this film. Yeah. Because it starts off and they hate each other already. Great. So we've got Dwayne Johnson, uh, The Rock, and we've Rock got the Dwayne Johnson. Rock the Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> uh, and Jason Statham playing uh, the, the titular characters of uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, we've got Idris Elba, who plays the uh, super uh, powered. Uh, bad guy, uh, Brixton, which I think is not just his name, but where he comes from. Uh, and um, the actress, whose name has just escaped me right now, Vanessa Shaw, coming in and playing uh, Jason Statham's sister, Hattie, who she is uh, an SAS member who uh, absorbs a uh, powerful um, uh, killer uh, a germ warfare piece of... Uh, it will probably melt all your insides yeah. out. We're not like, quite sure it works. It can be programmable. Like it, it, it will spread ridiculously once it gets activated. But she's ingested it um, in order to protect it. But it's it's ingested in a capsule form into her bloodstream that will degrade after so much time. It was 30 time, hours, I think. And I'm like sure it was more than 30 hours. But yeah, it was something like that. Uh, and these two characters are brought in, one by the CIA, one by uh, British Intelligence, to... To uh, uh, find her initially and um, and basically take on this evil organization, which was very very super villainish, I thought. Um, along the way, you've got you've got the the banter between the two characters, which is the best bit of the film for me. Is seeing the interplay between these two characters who who do clearly hate each other on screen uh, for the first part of it. Of course, the amazing stunt work. Um, every every act has a, a major sequence, right bang in the middle of it. 
uh, a, a car chase through through London, a car chase through Chernobyl, very car orientated, and then one as we get into uh, the, the the final act, which involves a, a helicopter. And do you remember that game, Pick Up Monkeys? It's about as close as I'm going to get without giving any spoilers. But for something as ridiculous as it is, and I couldn't really tell you the plot because it's a bit like Chinese fast food. You 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 enjoy it while you're eating it. Come away, you can't quite remember what you've had. But I do know for the two hours or so that I was in there, I, I had a silly grin on my face and and thoroughly thoroughly had a good time of it. And maybe now we'll go back and retrospectively go back and go into the Fast and Furious movies and see if I can get the same sort of silly smile back. It, it's but, an absolutely bonkers film but strangely enjoyable. But it's in a, like, I don't care if I ever see that film again. Yeah. But I'm glad that I saw it because, same as you, I was just grinning. Yeah. I was just caught up in it. I did find that the bickering between them for the first 40 minutes, it kind of got a bit too, like, you know, a second-rate yo mama. Um, And it felt like they were just trying to improvise and they just kept too many improvisation moments in there. But after the first 40 minutes, they kind of eased up on that. And it started just people little quips every now and then. It became the buddy movie then, didn't it? Yeah. It, it, it got a bit more natural and flowing from that point onwards. And, you know, it draws upon the family thing that's always been a thing in the Fast and Furious franchise as we explore, like, the background of The Rock's character. Um, and we also, like, get a lot of family aspect from Statham's character, including a, a, a nice welcome return of Helen Mirren. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, some, some neat little cameos. And, and um, I'm not going to mention here... But if you look at David Leach's, uh, who was the director's <laughs> previous film, it's very easy to work out who his cameo is. Um, and yeah, it made me a big silly smile for most of the film. Thoroughly had a good time with it. Better film than than I actually anticipated to it. Uh, um, more watched it out of the fact that I knew we were doing this than wanted to see it. But uh, I certainly would, certainly was entertained and be interesting to see where this goes. Um they definitely laid the seeds for like a, another film in this spin-off franchise. I mean, the whole film is a setup for like this big major organization that they, they're obviously going to battle at future dates. Um, I, I do get the feeling that the reason why this spin-off franchise was created was because of all the reports on the last couple of Fast and Furious films of the onset disputes between The Rock and Vin Diesel. Right. They didn't see eye to eye. Oh, okay. Those they, are two uh, eyes that you don't want to get because, in court. In because Vin Diesel is basically like the 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 produced, main producer for the core series, likely we're not going to see The Rock mix back into there because he really didn't mm, that's like interesting. it. But it'd be, they'd be stupid to not latch into his star power and use him in another vehicle. So this looks like it's been spun off to enable to keep The Rock within the franchise, but separate from the franchise, and have fun with him. And, because, and you do. Because he's huge at the moment. Yeah. I mean, we've got Jumanji 2 coming up soon. Well, Jumanji 3. Is it Jumanji? I've lost track. It's Jumanji... <laughs> 2.3. Do, do, we, do we include Zathora in amongst the Jumanji films? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. <laughs> oh, for debate, twi- you find us on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm interested to know. I know that Chris Morgan's really building up to his uh, Fast and Furious in space, which is where he wants <laughs> to take it. And and this film sort of paves the way for that in, in yeah. many ways. With it goes the, very sci-fi. The unidentified villain. Um, a lot of fun. It's playing at your local cinemas right now. Uh, if you want to get Fast and Furious, and this is a great entry point. If like me, you don't know. If you're interested in the franchise, it's a great place to uh, to start with. New Quentin Tarantino film out in the cinemas right now. Once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. Cool. That was the best acting I've ever seen. Welcome to our community. Charlie's going to dig you. 
That can all change like that. I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be very clear. I've just come back from a, a lovely two week holiday. I'm very brown. It's a shame you can't see the tan lines, but I've not had a chance to see this. Scott, I believe you've not had a chance to see this. I show. don't have quite the excuses you do, and still haven't seen it. <laughs> and so I'm gonna push it over to Andy. You have seen it, and what we thought we'd do is Andy talks about the film. We can also talk, and uh, Scott and I can throw in about the about Tarantino as a filmmaker and where he's going, and he's put himself up for talking about retirement and moving away from it. He's still got a Star Trek movie to write uh, before he goes for me. Um, tell us about it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Tarantino's love letter to the era of film that influenced him. There's little elements throughout it that you just go, that's why he's obsessed with martial arts. That's why, because it's set at that end of the golden era of cinema. Uh, DiCaprio's playing Rick Dalton, a once respected star who's now consigned to guest appearances, usually as the villain or the heavy who gets killed off because that's his declining career. His stunt double with a sketchy past is played by Brad Pitt and that's Cliff Booth. And they are the prime focus of the story as the story follows Rick's attempt to become a name again. In the backdrop of that, there's the day in the life aspect of Sharon Tate played by marvelously by Margot Robbie, um, who is Rick's next door neighbor that he just can't find the courage to go and get acquainted with her and her husband, Roman Polanski. Now, Many, many mistakenly believe when this film was getting pitched and like sold mm. that the film would be about Tate and the Manson family murderers. But no, that's never been Tarantino's intention. It's always been to use that as the backdrop to tell a story and just have this fantasy version of Sharon Tate like in the background of it throughout it. To say more on this would be spoilerific. So I'm, I'm very cautious not to spoil things here because it, the, the way that the story all plays out is beautifully structured. Um, it uses Tarantino's little like flashbacks and forwards, which for the first 20 minutes, because he's not really done this for the past couple of films, when he's suddenly thrown himself back to like the, okay, we'll jump back and forwards like he did on Reservoir Dogs. And Pulp Fiction it's a, a bit classic, jarring, right? but then you start to get to work out, oh, yeah, this was three days earlier. Oh, now we're back to the real time, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically every time that someone has a little memory of something, it's like a family guy cutaway, <laughs> <laughs> except without Peter saying something daft. Suffice to say on this one that when Tarantino dismissed that one very carefully constructed attack on his representation of women with an I reject your hypothesis, having watched the film, I completely understand why he rejected that hypothesis. The much publicised low word count that Robbie has, I don't know why I did the speech marks because the guys who are listening can't actually <laughs> hear me do the speech He did, marks. we can we confirm. <laughs> it, it's actually part of the whole point of her character being here. We lowly cinema patrons who watched the big screen, we're watching Rick Dalton and thinking, wow, an actor at the end of his career. Oh, well, how are we supposed to feel sorry for him? Because, you know, he's had his great moments and all that. But she's supposed to be the character that people like Rick Dalton aspire to be. And so she's his mythical creature to like, oh, I can't, I, I could probably boost my career if I could just be a part of their circle. Everyone has that little bit level ahead. And so her day in the life is to show her doing a normal things because she's a fantasy character. We don't need to see her interact with the story. We don't need to see her like meddle with things. She's not a like provocateur. She's just there to showcase that actors and actresses were normal people as well. And this was an interesting time in Hollywood. And, and I can see why Tarrant, as you said earlier, it's, 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 that, it's that, that moment of, of 
where Hollywood became something different. We were on the verge of the, the, the end of the summer of Love Down to the Manson Killings was was instrumental in sort of ending that that hippie hippie age. Not long afterwards, we got Roman Polanski, you know, doing you know, Rosemary's Baby around that time. You got Easy Rider coming through, which which changed how young people were seeing seeing that. And and my belief is from what I've read, and and it, I, if if I'm wrong, I, I apologize. But the characters are supposed to be Burt Reynolds and and Hal Needham, sort of in into a degree. Uh, and Burt Reynolds reinvented himself from being he was in a series called Cheyenne, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then Deliverance again, which was almost a slightly counterculture thriller, uh, gave him the resurgence. He was third on the bill, even though he'd had this this TV uh, TV history. And people like Steve McQueen were moving out into sort of doing more experimental films, like the original Thomas Crown Affair. So it was a period in Hollywood where uh, the old guard was certainly certainly changing, and um, uh, and, and the, the Manson killings as a as a as a shadow of that were one of the great, uh, you know, people still talk about it now, clearly. Um, there's there's a couple of other films, the Manson films in, in production right now, some of them ready, ready for release. Matt Smith playing Charles Manson in one yeah. film, I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, okay. That it still, it still holds a shadow to, to how that particular period and though that age changed tremendously. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that the whole aspect of Rick's character being like a once big screen star who's done a TV series for five or six years and now gone into decline... You know, it, it does like link back to like the age of the like the big names with the names on screen. But then you got to the end of the 60s and into the 70s, it was less about the big names on screens. It was more about just individual films and like there was no real big stars. Yeah, the star system has started to break and, apart. And that's that what Tarantino is analysing here. Look back on Tarantino's career, look on all his films and you can see influences on each one of them, like where he's drawn things from, from like Chinese cinema, from Hong Kong action films, from like your Hollywood blockbusters of like the 60s and early 70s, etc. And this is the film where he really expresses his love. It's beautifully framed, beautifully shot. He really loves the whole industry that he set it around. His obsession with feet has to be brought up because this film, more than any of his films... Has a lot of feet in it. Oh, he's doubled down. Oh wow, <laughs> he's, he, he's he's gone crazy with the foot fetish. <laughs> I mean, I, I I recently rewatched all of his films, including like the ones that he just like wrote, like True Romance, etc., yeah. and also the ones that he was just like producer of or participated in. And while watching through them, seeing like how his obsession with feet got more and more through it. There's a two minute sequence in Kill Bill, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> this film has more feet than I ever needed to see in a two and a half hour period. <laughs> um, I'd say that this is, a, I mean, this is a strong recommendation because I'd say that this is his strongest film since Pulp Fiction. That's good to know. I I fell off the uh, Tarantino bandwagon. I think he's an interesting filmmaker. He's, he's always got an interesting voice. I think he became too Tarantino oh, uh, with uh, um, Bastards. I thought it was, he played, he almost homaged himself to that yeah. degree. It wasn't the film that I, I went in to see, so I think maybe that was part of it. I was I was thought it was going to be a Man on a Mission film, and it really isn't. And I thought, you know, scenes of, of big dialogue scenes were just, it's a bit like J.K. Rowling. Uh, stay with me, guys. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, when she had an editor who could tell her, no, don't write this, and keep it lean, 
kept the stories tighter. When she was allowed to, which is a huge international success, she could write whatever she wanted and, and no one would tell her. Stephen King had the same I thing. I completely agree. It's, it's overindulgence. Isn't yeah, it? and it's somebody wasn't wanted. around to tell Tarantino. Yeah. You know, like, you're wonderfully <laughs> loquacious, mate. Great scene. But you don't need Mike Myers turning up as a weird British general. But ten, yeah. more, <laughs> ten more minutes have passed since this scene could have ended. Yeah, the, the, the whole scene in, in, uh, in Glorious Bastards of, of, the, uh, uh, of the game in the cellar in the yeah. German bar didn't be, progress the story. It's almost like a collection of short films that happen to be sequential, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> now, on that cellar scene, having recently rewatched it, I have to disagree. You see, I recently watched it, and I disagree. I, Where does that leave us? It's sort of in the matrix. I, 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 did, I didn't get it first time round, but when I watched it recently, I was drawn into that scene. It was the tension building of that scene. I just think it was the the, the rest of the like film had been bogged down by unnecessary sides, which maybe by the point of getting to that scene, it was like, oh, really? Just just hurry it up now. And that might be why it didn't quite impact. But for me, I, that was the strongest scene, aside from the opening farmhouse scene, mm. which I think is the most intense yes. like dialogue exchange yeah. that I've ever seen like on any Tarantino yeah, film. Was, that was pure threat. You see, and, and I didn't get to see Hateful Eight, and um, I just wasn't drawn to it. I'd like to have seen the 70mm print of it, which, which was going around and unfortunately missed that, but wasn't drawn to uh, Hateful Eight. I, basically, after Inglorious Bastards, I just... Uh, it's tough because if you had to rank uh, just pure gold Tarantino scenes, they'd all be up there and you'd think, oh, that must be one of his best films. But if I had to rate his films, I'd put it re- quite low down. Really. Um, and do you do that with Tarantino? Do you rate scenes rather than you rate movies? Do you go, oh, the scene out of such and such was, you know, fantastic? There is a degree of that. I, I think even with like Kill Bill and stuff, you, yeah. you, your mind moments well rather yeah. than yeah. overall. See, so Kill Bill... Volume one was more of a complete film for me than volume two. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, it went down several rabbit holes of, of areas that we didn't need. I don't think you needed the whole flashback training sequences to last as long as it did. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he's an interesting voice. I think you, you can always come back to he, he's, he's, a, he's a cinema voice. Uh, and it sounds from, from what, what you've just said, Andy, that it keeps, it keeps bringing it back to it's a love of cinema every time. That's the guiding principle of, of all films. They are relatable. They come from somewhere that we recognise. Yeah. And he puts his own his own touch on it. Uh, I do know that he did have a... I, I shall name drop. I am slight friends with Russell Mackay, the film director. And I do know that at one point, there was a, a vampire script going around that Russell Mackay was looking at that was a Tarantino one. And I think it was called... I think it was called Eight Weeks, if I remember correctly. Which would have been interesting, but um, if he does decide to retire, it'd be interesting to see what he does next. I would like him certainly to finish this Star Trek script because it would be nice to have that that cast come back and do one last film together. It'd be weird to retire on a Star Trek film, though, wouldn't it? Because he's always stuck by this ten I, film. I th- I think that I think his ten film that. thing is is ten films are the things that are his kind of idea and property. But he's also backtracked recently. I mean, I, I picked this up on an interview when he was saying, like, he considers Kill Bill 1 and 2 as being, like, one film. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're not on the ninth film. We're on the yeah. eighth film. And he said, like, he'd, he's got an idea for a Kill Bill 3. So that would be part of that one film. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah. that'll be... And I think he's going to use little get-out-of-jail clauses there. And then he'll turn around and say, well, Jackie Brown was adapted from another story. Someone yeah. else came up with yeah, that yeah. story. So that's not one of my films. He will make films as long as he's got an idea. He's not yeah. rushing to make films. He he he's set himself this ambiguous ten films yeah. idea, 
and, right there, and it? it's a, that's purely down to he can see the decline in the use of actual film stock in the industry and he doesn't want to make films if he can't use film stock he he hates digital he doesn't want to do it and i think that's when that's when he came out with his 10 films thing he just basically said well there's only about another five or six years of like this going on so that should cover me until then so we won't see his films on netflix as they film like, who knows? Well, you'll see them on Netflix, but he has to be he has to have shot them in um, yeah. actual 35 mil or 70 mil stock. I think for a genuinely superstar household name director, I think his studio would let him film however he wanted, regardless of what the going standard is. So I, I don't know why he's <laughs> Steven Soderbergh came back has had more comebacks now than Captain Scarlet. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's if he up. stops making films, I would love him to continue writing and maybe produce TV series. I think a Tarantino verse series exploring different eras has so much potential. So um, the main film this week to look at is the release of It Chapter Two by the master of horror himself, Mr. Stephen King. 27 years, I dreamt of you. I missed you. We didn't stop it. I missed you. So, just so you know, we're going to paint a picture. Andy got to see this yesterday. I couldn't make it to watch it with Andy. Uh, I've just seen it. I've literally just come out of the screening and before we recorded this. So, we've not even had, had an opportunity to chat amongst ourselves. We like to do before we start start recording. So, I don't know what Andy feels about this. Andy doesn't have a clue what I, I think about this. I've had time to have it have the film settle on me, to do a weighed opinion. Yours is going to be like a... Woof, yeah, mine, mine's, the, mine's the pure adrenaline of just having, having walked out of it. So, uh, just a brief synopsis for those who are completely out of the loop on this one. It Chapter 2 starts with a scene taken straight out of the book, which has caused some controversy. The film moves 27 years later from the first film and It is back. Mike Hanlon is the only one of the Losers Club who's still in Derry, whilst the others left the town and became huge successes, yet all mysteriously forgot everything that had happened to them in what is known as the Derry Effect. As Hanlon calls them all back to fulfil their bonding promise they all made, the gang find themselves facing old demons from their childhood whilst trying to work out how to defeat the evil clown Pennywise. So, instant opinion. I preferred the first film. I preferred Chapter 1. Chapter 1 had that Spielbergian feel to it, that ambling, Goonies. Uh, you can see where Stranger Things found its influence from. I liked it a lot. I don't think Chapter One is a horror film. I think it's a uh, an adventure film with horror elements. It's a coming it. of age. Of it's age a coming adventure. of age movie, and, and which is which Stephen King does incredibly well. The Body, which Stand by Me is based on, just captures that perfectly. I've re readdressed the book recently. I've mentioned in a previous podcast. So everything's very, very fresh in, in my mind about the, about the book. I think the casting is great. Bill Hader. Bill Hader steals every he, scene that he's in. He delivers his career best. Because you've seen him in so many comedies. You've seen him like... With you, do you watch Barry by any chance? I don't know. Barry is fantastic. He but, plays a, a hitman who wants to become an actor. It, it's it's not meta as you think it would be, but it, there's there's how to do something different with the hitman genre. I've seen him in... Um, it chapter two, he conveys every emotion on the whole range of emotions throughout the film. He's truly believable as a character. Absolutely loved him. He becomes the heart of the film. Definitely. He's uh, 
eased the, I mean, in a way, I, th- I feel that that kind of took away from part of the book as Bill was always the key character. Yeah. Bill was always the heart. But I feel that, I mean, you, when you say that James McAvoy is being overshadowed by another actor, yeah. you know that that other actor has deserved that slot. Uh, yeah, James McAvoy plays Bill, who was the, the, the stuttering child in the first film. Uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, Bill Hader, Bill Skarsgård uh, repeats his role and makes it his own from yeah, Tim I mean, Curry as, as uh, I, Pennywise. I, I genuinely feel he's he's got more of a like proper Pennywise feel than Curry had. I mean, Curry was the only good thing on that miniseries. Anyone who's got anyone who remembers being scared by that miniseries when they first watched it, go back and revisit it. You'll find that it's not actually that great, but Tim Curry was. Yes. Um, he's the standout. He's what you remember about it because his performance was he, everything he did in Legend, which is still, I think, is a phenomenal performance. <laughs> um, he, he brought to he brought to it, he, and he makes it more memorable than what it is. It, this is the best and, and worst of, of a Stephen King story. Stephen King story do do meander. There's a lot of a, a lot of development of character in it, probably more so than sometimes we need. There's a lot of uh, sidebars in in his books, and it does suffer from being maybe 100 and 200 pages too long. And that's the that's the same essence problem that I've had with, with Chapter 2. What I did like about it, it did feel more of a horror film. Yeah. So rounding out the cast, uh, Isaiah Mustafa as as Mike, who, who's the character who stays in Derry and brings them all back after a series of murders. And I'd like to talk about the, the murder at the beginning at some point. Uh, James Ranson who plays uh, Eddie, who was the kid who was... Uh, who was Stuck to his ventilator all the way through. Uh, overbearing mother. Overbearing mother. So it's a great, great cast. Uh, and of course, uh, Skarsgård putting his own take on the character. And stealing everything. Yeah, he's, he's great. Though I don't think it has as much to do. It doesn't feel as though there's as much he, to do in He kind of lurks for a lot of the film, just in the background. Yeah. Just as they are getting twisted by their own memories, he's just having fun watching them getting twisted. And that's what this film's about. This is a film about going back and revisiting your past and, 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 and possibly trying to make changes to your past, about things forgotten. There's a, there's a nice running gag that uh, the James McAvoy character, Bill, is a screenwriter and a, a book writer who can't finish a, a book with a good ending, which Stephen King's been accused of many, many times. Stephen King makes a fantastic cameo in it. I'm not going to tell you where. Oh, yes. But he, do, he does make a marvellous cameo and, and, and that sort of reference. Because the book has a very odd ending, which which has not necessarily worked uh, to a modern audience and, and was always the problem, was the problem with the miniseries. Uh, not so problematic here. I think I they think tackled it. The, I think that they ramped it up quite nicely at yeah. the end. And for me, th- there's bits that are missed from the book. I mean, particularly the subplots involving Audra, Bill's wife, and also Tom, Bev's husband. Yes. You know, they're absent those a lot. Through, like for all the daddy scenes. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because the, apparently there's a fair bit cut. I'm wondering if some of that still exists on the cutting room floor or whether it's never shot. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was aware that those moments were missing because I know the book inside yeah. out. And but, at two hours, 45 minutes, there's I think there's a lot of space wasted in it where we meet the young cast again, which I didn't feel was necessary. I wanted to get on with the adventure. And even though the young cast were absolutely phenomenal and, and made that first film, uh, you believed in them. You believed uh, 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 their adventure. You believed their jeopardy. I don't think I wanted to see them again, and they have been brought back. I don't know if that was always the plan or the film did that well that, that they felt the need to bring them back. I, I think that the manner in which that they've done the flashbacks in this one 
and it, the first film worked so well because it focused them on as a kid. And we've mentioned this before that, you know, it was a great way to just do a coming of age tale with horror elements that could stand on its own as its own film. But this second film adopts the style of the book a bit more. Yes. Where as the characters, the adult characters are remembering things, we witness those events. Yeah, we go back And all to that it made me good. think is like, well, why didn't you make the whole two parts like this so we yeah. didn't have to be reintroduced to the characters each time and it would have flowed a bit better. And maybe it's one of those hindsight things that they realised that they could make one film and if it wasn't, the first part wasn't a success, it's okay, that's just one film. It's on its own. It stood, stood on its own. It didn't need a sequel. But now that we've got the whole story, I do wonder if going back and re-editing it to make it that the adults are remembering things as we're learning things would work in its benefit. Actually, there's rumours that the director, um, Andy Muschietti, is talking about a supercut of It Parts 1 and 2. Well, there was talk, uh, and I was following this because I, I, I didn't purchase or I didn't get it part one, that there was going to be a, an extended director's cut. So again, as we talked about with Tarantino, the, the idea of a, even a, a Netflix miniseries based on this, it did get a bit miniseries-y feel with it. The, the horror elements worked really well. There were some, some truly gross-out effects, gross-out sequences, the Chinese restaurant sequence, for instance. Pity that it ended with a gag because it didn't need to, and it sort of underscored it. And it happened a few times. There's one moment that completely took out took me out of the film, and, and for an unnecessary reason, Angel of the Morning sound yeah, appeared on the soundtrack. I thought you were going to mention that one. I have no idea why that was in. I, I don't know if I missed something or misremembered something from the first film. It completely took me out of the film. That then I had to spend time getting back into the film, and there's a John Carpenter's The Thing reference. See, I quite enjoyed the little thing reference and that threw me out of it and they were the shining the, reference not so much but no. the john carpenter the thing reference i i find myself chuckling but seeing the context of it because the character who makes the reference you could kind of see why he's the character who would respond to yeah that. but the angel in the morning sequence and, and where it's placed and i don't know what i've missed for them to have, to have used that i don't know if it was in the the, the older movie uh in the flashback sequences i don't know but it completely took me out of the film and i had to spend time getting back in, into it overall i enjoyed it i'd like to see i'd like to see a supercut i think it would be uh it, it would add elements to it that that will take it like back close to the novel it works as uh, and again, a horrific adventure film as opposed to a horror film. But then again, it, the book's not really a horror horror book. No, it's still like a journey kind of book yeah. with horror elements. And it's true to the book. It, it's absolutely true to the spirit of the book, even though there's the sequences which are lost in characters, which well, I would have liked to have seen in. It's not one of those, let's remember Lawnmower Man. <laughs> that bears no resemblance to what what, what King was uh, was was involved in, and it captures the essence. And all good film adaptations should capture the essence of what the book's about. And I think it does that, and and, and I applaud it for that. The second part is not as perfect as the first part. I think the, f the first on is, is is nearly a perfect version of it that you can do. Unfortunately, the second one isn't quite there in the way that the first one is. But I did enjoy it. I must admit, I had a, had a roller coaster of a ride with it. There was some jump out of my seat moments and some some genuine surprises and they tackled the ending which is very muddled in the book in a way that the the, the best way of doing it which is all about the notion of what fear is yeah um i mean with regards to the supercut idea machete's been saying that you know it's not just putting the two films together but all the scenes that were cut from part one and part two 
be able to reinstate. And he's also talking about potentially getting some financing to film some elements that he wanted to, to include and didn't get chance to. And I'd like that supercut to not just be have part one and then part two playing, but literally just take all the scenes and recut them into the parts of the adult story yeah. that they would reflect to so that we get it more like the book. Because I don't, I, like you say, you've touched on that it's got the feel of the book. It gets the ideas of the book. There's changes. I mean, The Great Turtle. Yeah, which would never really have worked. If you read the book, The Great Turtle is an element that really takes it into the, into the realm of the fantastical. And thankfully, it was hinted at actually in the first film, but but was was dropped because it just wouldn't work. It would completely take you out. The idea of what it looks like and being a giant spider yeah. and what they've done with that and managed to work with that and do something um, uh, kind of unique with it, I thought was 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 very, very good. But uh, yeah, it's 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 good. I, I did enjoy it. I've come out of it and had a good ride, a long ride at that. But it's a little bit, and I heard Mark Komoot say these, and those words spring straight to mind, which it's, it's a little bit like being on a roller coaster and you, there was one ride slightly too many. It was like, you know, you go up, you go down, you go up, and then it does that loop-de-loop at the end, which is like, I don't really need that. I've, I've had a good time. I think it slightly overstays its welcome, but I would like to see a, an ultimate cut if, if it ever becomes available. You mentioned you'd like to touch on that opening scene. Yeah, so there's been a lot of controversy, and it clearly by people who've not read the book. There's a very, very brutal murder at, at the beginning of the film, which is uh, very, very much the same brutal murder that opens opens uh, it uh, and it's nasty and it's it's basically two gay characters are set up on by it by a gang and a lot of people have criticized it for being homophobic the, the film doesn't purport to be homophobic the characters who do this dreadful deed are homophobic and that's there shouldn't be an apology for what that is and people are, are up in arms because uh, a, a gay character is killed at the beginning of the film. It's the it's the thing. It's that underlining. It's like blue velvet. It's that moment in small towns where something disgusting and lives under the surface of it, like a like an awful, brutal murder that that brings it back to life. I mean, in the first film, when we saw the kids' journey, we got glimpses of how horrific the actual normal townsfolk were at Derry because they've all been corrupted. By yeah. the presence of it. I mean, basically, loads of kids go missing every 27 years and everyone just kind of gets it off and it. gets on with it. It's like they treat it as normal. Bev's father, absolute piece of work. Yeah. Everyone's parents don't care. Which, this, which, which brings those kids this together. This second film doesn't have much of that, but this opening scene is a way to just like make, make you realise that it is as much a part of Derry as Derry is a part of it. The people within Derry are so corrupted by the presence of that, which has been there since millions of years, that they are corrupted. There's even a... And I feel that, you know, the scene is shocking. It's brutal. But it's the, it's the catalyst that starts Pennywise off again. Yes. And it is the, it's the sort of horror that we, we're in a world that we're living with now. So it's, while it's an on-screen horror, it's the sort of horror that happens to it for an awful lot of people from the gay community, from the LBGQT community that it is now uh, have to live with that sort of threat I mean, so the, i don't think the film should has to make an apology i don't think films really should ever make an apology they are what they are but the fact that this evil does exist in small towns in in the in and in cities that we that we live and propagate in now so i i think i, I stand by it as a scene it was used yeah. in the book it's the that evil that horrible everyday evilness that feeds it and brings it back when and, king and wrote it when, 80s, when, he, when he, yeah in the 80s he put that, that whole chapter in with that killing 
because he found that kind of thing sickening and horrific. And he wanted to show people, like, this, you should be horrified by this. This is real horror. You should feel that this is disgraceful and distasteful. And then you should go away and think about it and go, maybe I need to be more open-minded about other people. And as much as we like to think that we're all woke in this day and age, that still goes on. Absolutely. So that scene is still very, very crucial to the times that we live in. And I think they were... Absolutely right to keep it in. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely I don't think there right. Any be apology. I don't think it needed to be addressed again further in the film. There's hints of one of the characters' uh, uh, sexuality, which was which was uh, a nice touch and surprising as well, and and wasn't dwelled upon, but hinted at, and and we were allowed to make our own conclusion. Uh, I thought that would have made they would have made something bigger out of that, and I'm, I'm actually worked nicer that they didn't, uh, and that we were left to guess because it's some that character's secret. But I, I, I totally agree with you. It, it, that is real horror. That is the horror of a lot of people living with in, in this world, in communities. And I, I think plaudits for them to have that scene in. It, it, it does make you feel queasy and you feel sad for characters whose screen time is, is 10 minutes. And then you feel very, very sad for them. And that's the effect that that, that has on it. And the horror that follows it is never as horrific as, as what can happen in real life. I think that's one thing that King has always been really good at doing. He's great at supernatural. He's great at dark, dark and twisted, like other events impacting. But it's when he gets down to the nitty gritty of the human nature, that's when he really chills you because he really taps into what makes man such a bad thing. So it sounds like we pretty much agree on, on it. Yeah, it, it's it's a flawed film. It would have worked better if it was one whole film and all edited and structured the same way. The way that they've done this one to be more like the book makes you look at the first one and go, well, hey, why did why they do that now? But it's not a bad film and it's a good companion piece. And yeah. it does wrap it up a lot better than that miniseries did. The, yeah. the finale is a spectacle, an emotional blast to watch. It proper packs many punches. There's dark humour in there, but there's also a lot of real like drama and emotion. Absolutely recommended. If you love the first one, you'll at least enjoy this. If you didn't like the first one, I don't think it's going to change anyone's opinions. No. Watching it all as a whole is not going to make you enjoy it anymore. And it would be worth, if you are thinking of going to see it, uh, um, you must, you should really, if you've, you consider yourself a fan of Filmfile and a fan of, of Stephen King, you should really go and see it. it. It's definitely worth the ride. But try and get to see part one again before you go, because it, it literally picks up at the end of, of that that last movie. So uh, it's a nice companion piece. It's a very well done. Lots of practical effects in it, which were great to see yes. as well as, as, as CGI in it. But it's also brought about, uh, just before we, we sort of move on, it's brought about this resurgence in Stephen King and um, the new Doctor Sleep trailer. Oh, now there's a film I can't wait for. Yeah. Now I've heard rumours that it's the studio are a little bit worried about it, whether that's they're worried about it in this kind of like, as we said right at the beginning, of the program, the way Tank Girl is, that it might be too horrific. I think it's got the potential to be a better film than the book. I found the book disappointing. In considering that it's a, a, a sequel to The Shining, which is probably King's classic. Yeah. Uh, and as a, as a sequel to that particular book, it felt felt very small. And it's clearly it's a very, very different story, but it didn't feel as though it, it, it was a necessary sequel. So I'm hoping... And, and there's and from looking at the trailer uh, and looking at the previous trailer that there is a definitely a, a, a symbiotic relationship between Kubrick's uh, The Shining and this film. And for those who don't, it's, it's the, uh, the the child in The Shining is growing up and he's now Ewan McGregor. Yeah. 
I mean, if you were going to grow up as a child, yeah, why not be you? Yeah, be you and McGregor. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th- they've deliberately made this film, from what I've read, to be seen as a sequel to The Shining, the book, but also to be a sequel to the film, which had a very different tone and a de- very different elements. So regardless of which version of The Shining you enjoy the most, you should be able to get something out of Doctor Sleep. Personally, I, I, I enjoyed Doctor Sleep, the book. Right. I found it his easiest, fi- easiest film, easiest book to fall into. And usually I find like two or three chapters I need to read of a new Stephen King book before I start to get a feel for it. But with this, it was on halfway through chapter one. I was like, yeah, I did I steam mean, through it. I get what you mean, that it was a very slight kind of book. There's not a lot going on. It's a very like contained story, whereas The Shining was quite quite a large scale like story. I'm really excited for the film. Everything that I've seen about it has just sparked my interest. And I, I just, I, I like Ewan McGregor as an actor and I think he's a good bit of casting for like a grown up version. It's good to see Stephen King making a, a comeback to the cinema, um, even after the disappointing Pet Cemetery. Yeah, we'll um, brush that one under the carpet. We're going to be talking about a film that's had a very mixed reaction from the critics. A lot of them saying it a masterpiece, and it's yet failing to find a great audience. No, we're not talking about Joker, because it's not being released yet. That's next week, isn't it? It is next week. We can't wait. Maybe we'll have to do a special Joker episode, I think. But we're talking about Ad Astra, directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt. I saw it. Andy saw it. Scott's not seen it yet. No. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that, and we're going to be talking about how science fiction is now being portrayed on the big screen. And as the era of the big, more cerebral science fiction films gone. But... First, Ad Astra. What can you tell us about the Lima project? The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life could be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening. I love you. I worry about you. Are you truly sure that you're ready to go on this voyage? I'm ready. We're going to be entering hostile territory. But the mission is the priority. We cannot stop. Nothing can prepare you for what is out there. So Ad Astra is basically Hearts of Darkness, or for those who don't know, Hearts of Darkness, Apocalypse Now, set in space. It even has a Colonel Kurtz-type sequence at the end. Yep. Brad Pitt is the key character in it. He plays Major Roy McBride, a man who's always lived in the shadow of his father's legend, H. Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who led a secret project 16 years ago to reach the outskirts of the solar system in search for intelligent life. A series of pulses from near Neptune caused worldwide power surges and Roy sent on a top secret mission to Mars to try to establish communications with his father and discover what's happening. The journey, as with Hearts of Darkness, sees the pitfalls of man around him while Roy's internal journey of the soul also plays out. It is very much 2001 meets Apocalypse Now. And I had not read anything. I, I, I deliberately avoided it. I'd seen it. It got great reviews. I'd seen a couple of uh, poor reviews, but I, I stayed away from it. So I went in with a, with a clean expectation of what I was about to expect. And I, I thoroughly loved it. I thought it looked fantastic. It had almost a retro 2001-esque uh, view of it. It was it was very, very stylized. Stylized in the way that an art movie would, to, to a degree. 
thought Brad Pitt was fantastic in it. The voiceover reminded me of Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. I, I really, really walked out and I loved it. And then suddenly something happened. I, I heard other reviews and saw other reviews and it sort of knocked me back a little bit because I'd gone in having a great time. Yes, it was, it was, it was beautiful. It was very well done. It was flawed, uh, flawed in some, some of the plot areas, but I did have a good time. And has that ever happened to you? You ever walked out of a film, you loved it, then you've read a review and you go, was, was I right? Was I wrong on this? To a degree. Well, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm sure you two are exactly the same way. You, you're digesting it for days after the fact yeah. anyway. So I think some of that's almost a natural digestation period in a weird way because obviously people can point stuff out. You probably know it consciously or unconsciously yourself and you weigh that up on its own merits. But I don't think anyone's changed my opinion after the fact. But people have helped me articulate my initial feeling in that period of time. And then and then it usually sets, doesn't it, until you watch it again. Yeah, it drew my attention to the flaws and, and some of the flaws that it was. It was, it was an amazing, as I say, an amazing visual journey. I thought Pitt was fantastic. I, I liked where it was going. It had these strange moments where it drifted into an action movie and then drifted back out of it as almost almost chapter headings on on, on each part of the journey. Those were the little bits that threw me out. I was more interested in, in almost the internal journey, but it looked beautiful. So whenever it did did veer off, whenever it did feel a little bit awkward, I was always drawn back to how, how that it was a brave science fiction film to make in this day and age. And, and that surprised me, I mean, to say that, because we've now had a place where we're not adverse to seeing amazing special effects anymore. We, very rarely are we blown away. There were moments of this which, which were, the effects-wise were very practical-looking, uh, and had a, had a sense of, of of real drama again and real scope and real scale. But it made me think that, is the big science fiction film dead? If this is not really finding its audience because it is more of a, a thought journey than an action film, uh, oh, oh, have we reached a stage where we can't have a 2001 anymore? I was thinking of Annihilation, which ended up going straight to Netflix because it, it didn't really find an audience or wasn't perceived to find an audience on the big screen. What are your thoughts on that? I think... I mean, there's over the past few years there have been that style of like classic sci-fi brought to the big screen that have been successful. Interstellar, yeah, for example, was a box office smash. But you know, was it the fact that Nolan's name was attached to it that drew mm. the audiences in more than anything else? Who Gravity. knows? Gravity yeah. um, was, although Gravity, was, Gravity was more a disaster movie in space. Yeah. Um, so it, it really did have like the action, action, action. I think The Martian is probably going to be the one that stands out as being like it. That is the same kind of like one man journey yeah. kind of thing of this. Not a lot happens in The Martian, but you're engrossed throughout and audiences embrace that. I think that was that was down to casting. I think Matt Damon in that role and it, it was a warm role. And, and the, the Brad Pitt character in this is a much more isolated. He's, he's a cold character from the get go. And that's his journey. Matt Damon was on full full tilt Matt Damon yeah. likable character. And it was jokey and, and Drew Goddard made quite an impenetrable book very, very into a very enjoyable film. Uh, and it makes me think now, is there is there a, a new genre called the sad astronaut? <laughs> Have we discovered this uh, This is a, a, every couple of years, the, the lone single sad astronaut film? Well, I always think sci-fi, good sci-fi, if not all sci-fi, it's, it's, it's using fantastical scientific elements to discuss the human condition, isn't it? And whatever our concerns are for whatever period it's made. So a lot of sci-fi is so prevalent it's obviously around but I, I i find they're always in the like moon or district nine molds of a more sort of subtle commentary or threat on the human condition whereas the ex more exploratory space thing they usually happen in periods of 
optimism, human growth in humanity and, and reaching for the stars. We've not had that for years, have we? No. So even no. Interstellar, it's more of a ode to humanity and what we've done and what we could do than anything like we will get here. Do you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, you, I was uh, thinking of Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel, which um, was beautiful, was, oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. was a unique film. But didn't find an audience, no. and it was a big scale. You had to see it on. You had to see it in, in in IMAX to really appreciate it. But it we'd moved on. Uh, an audience has moved on, and, and I just wonder if if the home of the cerebral sci-fi is not You know, people's cinemas have become more like your lounge, and your lounge has become more like a cinema now. So, does it matter? I not found myself wanting to watch the Blade Runner sequel at home. I know it's up on Netflix right now. Because it it will underscore what that film's about for me. Because it, it, I needed that big screen. I found it so immersive. Mm. But does it work better? Because it's it's uh, it's a much more personal journey. I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is. I I, I mentioned Star Trek: The Motion Picture as yeah. <laughs> being been a perfect example of of wanting to do a cerebral um, a cerebral science fiction film while Star Wars had just done remarkably well and sort of pipped it at the post to the big screen in a way that. That uh, have have we moved on from that? But I hope not, because there's always always I mean, a place for good. Using Star Trek the motion picture, I mean that is sneered at. I mean I, I love the film, and there are like it, it has got a lot more people becoming fans of it now. I liked it, um, liked it a lot. more and more. But at the time, it was very much it got referred to very frequently as the slow motion picture. Yeah. Nothing happens. It's drawn out. There's no need for this. So then the second film, Wrath of Khan. Action, adventure, action, adventure, and people lap that up, and that got the franchise completely moving. Mm. Sci-fi today, the ones that seem to get the box office blockbuster impact, seem to be the ones that grab the action adventure type type of things. That's what I mean. We're looking for escapism right now. In terms of obviously, we're living more cynical times. Whereas I can't think of a franchise more like defiantly hopeful than Star Trek, in its very bones and DNA. Pretty much, it's conceived that way, isn't it? And even that, yes, it's on Netflix and CBS, Star Trek Discovery. But people criticise that as being a bit too dark, a bit too Star Wars bent, a bit too what at war. Whilst you've got like the Orville, which is inspired by the next generation era of Star yeah. Trek, that is a lot more optimistic yeah. and happy and friendly. And yeah, maybe that is, I think it's a, it is thing. a sign of the times thing, is that we're living in an era where... Well, let's be honest, uh, the, the world leaders of the superpowers are not anything to be proud of. Yeah, and, and maybe, the science fiction that always And maybe to that. we don't want to go to the cinema to be a bit more depressed. Yeah. Uh, but that's not saying that, I'd, I mean, get back to Ad Astra, it's not a depressing film. Far from it. It's a very touching, very emotional film. And Brad Pitt is absolutely stellar throughout it. And that's not to disregard the supporting cast. I mean, even Ruth Negger, when she pops up in a very small role. Donald Sutherland, one of my favourites. She steals oh, wow. the screen. Yeah, I mean, it, when he... Like, is it in it towards the start of the film? It's just like, whoa, hang on. I've not seen you for ages. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he was at his away, most Donald Sutherland as well. Straight oh. away, you just fall in love with that character. Like it's Brian a Sutherland. great film with a great cast, but all held together by Brad Pitt's voiceover, his journey, his characters, like, growing out of his father's shadow, becoming himself and learning to be who he could be and who he should be. Absolutely marvellous film. Loved and it's it. still playing... And like you say, there's flaws... But I think the sign of a good film is one that even when you can recognise the flaws, 
you can still love that film because there's no such thing as a perfect film. I don't care what anyone says. I get it all the time about well, Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane's not a perfect film. There's a flaw right in the opening scene of that, and I'm not going to talk about it here because I've spoken about it so many times. <laughs> but the very opening scene, who heard that word, Rosebud? No one. No one was in the room. Uh, but you overlook things like that because the film has grasped you on an emotional core. And it's made you think, and you have gone away and you've thought about it and you've researched other people's opinions because it's put you in a position where you've gone, well, actually, that's what the film's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be getting us to think about it. And that's what good film does for me. And like you say, it's a shame that they're not having the impact on the big screen. As long as we can get them in some form. The small screen is nothing to be sneered at. I mean, Scorsese's Irishman is just around the corner. New trailer out this week. But yeah, visually, I think that the big screen needs to be seen for Ad Astra because I don't think the visuals will convey as well and as impressive on whatever size TV you've got at home. Before we do neat things, oh, can I just quickly mention um, a film out this weekend, Ready or Not? Oh, yeah. This bride... I can't wait to be a part of your family. ...is here for the right reasons. Your vows were beautiful. But his family... Hide and seek. ...is playing games. Good luck. On August 23rd... They think they have to kill you before sunrise. I just saw her run. Oh, my God! I gotta put on my game face. She's... You're not. A beautiful, dark comedy. Samara Weaving plays Grace, the newly wedded wife of Alex Ladomar, who's played by Mark O'Brien, and finds herself on the run from the family she's joined thanks to a wedding day ritual of gaming that turns into a vicious game of hide-and-seek. It's bloody, brutal, deliciously darkly comical. The film's a joyful, tight 90 minutes long, with some squeams and some screams. It's fantastically thrown together with a brilliant cast of oddball characters that you will have recognised from various TV shows and other films, but you'll never be able to remember the names of, and that's how I'm getting away with not knowing their names right now. <laughs> but it's an utter joy of a comedy horror. I thoroughly recommend it to everyone. Go and see it. It's 90 minutes of your life that you will just want to revisit and revisit and revisit. I can't wait to pick this up on home release and just keep re-watching it. Brilliant film. So the big film out this week, and we have to talk about it, are we we're going to try and not be spoilery? I, I think that in order to properly talk about it, at some point we need to do spoilers. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it generally as a film. And then we'll have like some kind of klaxon or maybe a mani maniacal laugh as a spoiler. Maniacal laugh seems to fit towards in the very end of this well. episode where we'll touch in it. So we'll basically close off the episode, but then keep it open for people who want to hear our thoughts on aspects of the film, which unfortunately, because of the kind of film that it is, have to delve into spoiler territory. You know, I do stand up comedy. You should come see a show sometime. I could do that. People think you're weird. They don't feel comfortable around you. I don't want you worrying about money, Mom. Or me. All that sacrifice, she must love you very much. She always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. <laughs> You're so funny, aren't they? So I've just seen it. You saw it a couple of days ago. You've had more time to process it. It's the film at the moment that everyone's talking about for not exactly the reasons that we thought everyone would be talking about. And, and, it's, and it's something I, I didn't see, which is this sort of uh, uh, zeitgeist of kind of what's been happening in the US with uh, white guys in particular feeling as though the, the world owes them, owes them something, going out and, and um, buying guns and wreaking havoc uh, with loss of life and a sense that 
society has let them down and they are angry young men. I remember the same arguments happening with Fight Club. Yeah. And at no point did I, do I think that, apart from a few underground fighting clubs, that anarchy ruled the streets. And I don't think anarchy will rule the streets after this. So, Andy, talk us through the plot. So, it, it's an origin story. We're focusing purely on the Joker. And, you know, the Joker's been prevalent since the 50s when he was first introduced in Batman issue one. And it originally intended just a one-off character, but became so popular. But he's been redefined for every era. In this one, we've got a guy named Arthur Fleck who seems to be a bit downtrodden. He's got a mental disorder, which has... Makes him laugh maniacally. Makes him laugh in uncomfortable, nervous situations, which some people think is a bit weird. And so he gets taunted, he gets picked on, he gets abused, no one trusts him. He seems unliked by people. And it follows as, like, you know, he gets, like, beaten up, he gets, like, victimised on subway trains, until he snaps. And then he snaps... And he starts to realise that he enjoys the snap and he builds through. That's the surface level of the film. Yeah, just to point out that he's a, he's a clown, isn't he, at the beginning? And yeah. he's got aspirations of being a stand-up comedian, which uh, feels like those elements were taken out of Alan Moore's killing joke. Yeah. To choose our words very carefully. Well, let's talk about casting. I mean, you know... Okay, so Quiet Phoenix uh, plays Joker. Uh, and it is a phenomenal... His it, commitment to it, I mean, the weight loss that he's gone through. For the role, the contortions that he does whenever he's like... There's these beautifully shot, uh, very stylized, very slow motion sort of dance sequences that, that he that he performs, um, which are sort of crossed between dancing and Tai Chi, I thought, which is purely physical performance. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful performance because it, you're watching a character that is, that is actually quite unlikable. And when you do find yourself, and you don't sympathise with him, at no point during the film I sympathise with the character, I empathised, which is a different ball game entirely, there are moments when you empathise with him. He is the, he's the complete anti-hero. And a, a lot of people have thrown their, their hankies in the air on this one because he, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a character who brings chaos. That's what the Joker does. Um, he brings murder. That's what the Joker does. And let's not forget, well, this is a movie that is... And it's heart of it, if you're staying true to what the Joker is, is a supervillain. Even though it's told in a realistic setting, it's sold in the sort of world of the, the, the 70s. What I did like from the get-go was the old Warner's uh, logo yeah, at the beginning of the screen, that rather bright, that the bright red background yeah, with the black the W, old, which reminded me of, of uh, interesting set as well. Up. Every other film based on a comic book property is then followed by like the logo representative of the company. Yeah, the DC, no logo DC logo doesn't appear until the very end of the end credits. Right, they've made it clear that this is not a connected tissue yeah. to the DCEU. It doesn't fit into any of the current DC continuity. It's a film on its own. And this is where it's it's very bold. It, it tells a story about a character that, that isn't related to the DC universe. And we've spoken about this on the show, that that's, that was DC's biggest mistake, was, was trying to, to force start, everything together. Yeah, to force it into, into a universe the way that Marvel did it and tried to go down the steps that Marvel did it. Instead of Warner's taking control and saying, this is a film that we've created. It should stand alone. It's a Superman film. It's a Batman film. Uh, and clearly the audience didn't want that connected tissue that they got from Marvel. And it stands out on its own. It looks amazing. It's shot in this very 70s way. 70s filmmaking is, is my favourite period. So and it captures that perfectly. It has that feel of Scorsese's Main Street. It's very Scorsese-esque a lot of the way through from, from that particular period. Taxi Driver springs instantly to mind. King of Comedy uh, uh, springs instantly to mind. It's uh, the films that they used to make, funny enough, 
where the anti-hero, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, were the lead characters. Uh, the same sort of uh, condemnation for it from, from much more superior critiques than, than ourselves uh, failed, to, failed to draw. This was a time where there was a cinema was like this. It did present interesting characters who you didn't necessarily like. Um, half a dozen spring to mind from that particular period. That's what I loved about it. That's what I really liked. It's a very mature direction from Todd Phillips. I and mean, it's a far cry yes, from the frat boy humour yeah. um, of the past. Definitely benefited by his continuing work with Lauren Shear, the cinematographer. Yeah, it who, like, looks amazing. As bad as the Hangover films got by the third one, they still look beautiful. In fact, that was my problem with the Hangover films, that they were, they were drama-looking instead of comedy-looking. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? I think, I think the first one was a, a lot like more comedy feel throughout it. But yeah, the second and third ones, I mean, by the third one, the, I hardly laughed watching it. Yeah. And it wasn't because the jokes weren't funny. It's because the jokes weren't there. Yeah. It was a very dark, twisted yeah. way to finish the trilogy. Yeah. And they and it looks like, um, but, they looked like great cinematic films. I mean, but, with Love and Share, I mean, I only realised when like looking up, like his previous work, he was just, he was just the cinematographer on one of my favourite films of the past few decades, Garden State. Oh, I love Garden what State. What an amazing film! I mean, the, the, every imagery, bit of imagery, in stood with the shirt against the wall, is yeah. just a great shot because he's off to the side, and that is evidence of like how skillful Lauren Sher is of getting like a beautiful looking shot. And in Joker, I think it's I think it's a masterpiece of cinematography. It's it is it's an amazing looking film. I like the I like the time period for it. This this sort of uh, end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, uh, and it definitely is a time period. You look at the cars uh, that go to the cinema, and uh, I noticed cinema po uh, poster for the for the film Wolfen. Yeah, was up there, so it instantly gives it a, a time period. So that's what I I really liked about it. the the performances are great. Robert De Niro's in it, playing almost uh, uh, Rupert Pumpkin uh, Pumpkin again from uh, King, King Comedy. Comedy has now got his own talk show. I think trying to tie it into DC, into the DC folklore, was the thing that let it down for me. There's a portrayal of uh, Thomas Wayne, who, who uh, Batman fans will know as, as Bruce Wayne's father. There's a, a storyline with a very young Bruce Wayne in it. I am starting to edge into spoiler territory. But we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Uh, and those were the things that, that I, I felt more uncomfortable. I was more, more interested when it was a standalone film yeah. than having to tie into... Yes, it's set in Gotham. Yes, it, it does tie a little bit into uh, in, into the DC universe. Those were the more bigger letdowns for me. Didn't like the portrayal of Thomas Wayne. I didn't think that's what I believe Thomas Wayne to be. And if it has it, it did encroach into that into those properties. I, I didn't need that to yeah. make it interesting. Um, as an overall film, it's a, it's a very visceral film. I don't think it's going to incite riots. Certainly not in this country. So I don't think that disenfranchisement, disenfranchised yeah, feel. I think that the old controversies that it's going to glamorise violence, it doesn't glamorise violence. No, when the violence doesn't. comes, it's brutal, it's shocking and it jolts you. Yeah, it doesn't I, make you go, wow, that was cool. Yeah. It makes you go, oh, wow. Though um, there's a scene oh. on the subway train which leads to violence that, interestingly enough, I was caught up in the character to, to want him to fight back. Yeah. Uh, and and that surprised me. It's a it's a very adult film. It's not uh, it's not a Batman movie in the in the way that that one would expect a Batman movie, and especially in in light of where Marvel have taken their characters, and and, and recently DC have taken their characters. Uh, and for that, it, it needs to be applauded. It's a very very interesting take on a character, and we've been talking about this for ages. How can you make a Joker movie without mentioning Batman? Well, you can. Yeah. Quite simply, and it's all there on the screen. 
uh, with fantastic performance, with a very, very uh, gritty film. It does stray occasionally in, into pretentious, but I'm okay with that because I'd rather they be bold than to uh, uh, than to, to be fearful of, of stepping into territory, which uh, so far no comic book, mainstream comic book movie has stepped into. With the controversies, I mean, there's been reports of like cinemas in the US that have had police presence outside. FBI giving a warning about yeah. it. AMC cinemas, there have been a few of them reported that they had signs up saying no one's to be allowed admittance on their own. Everyone has to come with other people. Really? Because they're that afraid of like lone idiots. That's not representative to me of the power of the, this film itself. That's representative of the society that we live in. That's at a the moment. really good point. I, yeah, I think you've and, answered that and, perfectly. And whereas like people often say that art imitates life, well, and life imitates art. This is a true case of the art imitating life is that what the Joker film is representing is the environment that we're living in at the moment. And anything that you're worried about that film containing, it's actually happening on your streets at the moment, and you should be more worried about that than what a work of fiction can do. Yeah. And this is the thing that like about the Joker as a character, there's no definitive Joker. Everyone is representative of the times that you live in. You see people say, like, Heath Ledger, the definitive Joker. Well, he was for that moment in time. Yeah. I think Joaquin Phoenix is the definitive Joker for the moment in time because yeah. he's reflecting the troubles of our society. It's a hard film to discuss in detail without dropping into spoiler territory. It's a film that sits with you after you watch it. You don't just finish watching it and go, way, let's go and get a burger. You sit in your journey home in complete silence as you're processing elements of the film. Yeah, you it's, will discuss this. It's powerful. It's stunning. There's ways that you can interpret uh, interpret moments in the film in different ways, and it's a film that provokes discussion. To me, that that should be that should overwrite any controversies simply because anything that provokes discussion can only be a good thing. And this has been said before. This was said with Taxi Driver that it would uh, that it would incite violence and vigilantism. It was said with Falling Down, which I think this film is very, very close to yeah. in its essence. They said it with Fight Club, which we mentioned earlier. They say it with lots and lots of films. I, I don't believe there's that correlation. If somebody is going to, you know, there was that guy who opened fire in a screening of, of uh, Dark Knight Rises, Rises, dressed as, as, as a Joker-type character. Now, if some nut job is going to go out and let's be honest, if, you, if you're thinking of, of, of harming other people, you're a nut job. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know if there's a, a, a more PC term for it. If you're going to go out and harm people and you think you're influenced by a movie, then it's a very, very shorthand way to, to, to write off mental illness or, or problems within a society. I don't think we'll get any, anything like this in the UK. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I'm wrong. I don't think we have that correlation. You can... Uh, President Trump recently made a correlation between video games and violence. Uh, it's No, it's much more of a society problem. People can find triggers in all sorts of things. If they're going to find a trigger out of this movie, it's too grown up a movie for mass consumption. Uh, I saw it in a, in a packed theatre, but it's a grown up movie. And you could see, you can tell when people are coming to see one thing and it's not. And you start to feel, oh, start to hear shuffling a little bit because it's not, a, this is not a comic book movie but it's inspired by a comic book story. And the thing about the Joker is there is not one defined origin story no. for e that character. Every time that he's reinterpreted, it's a different origin. And you never know what the true origin of the Joker ever was. Yeah. And I love the fact that it just represents whatever age we live in. And yeah. they keep redefining them. In the comics, they just keep mashing the universes together in like various crises and yeah. flashpoints and things like that in order to correct any continuity issues. 
I don't want to know a definitive origin. No, I love having be. interpretations. And uh, th again, there'll be more on that in the spoilers. Okay, shall we get into spoiler territory? Well, uh, uh, sound the alarm. <laughs> okay, we're in spoiler territory. If you want to keep listening, please do. Uh, if you're interested to in hear what we talk about, then we are going to mention some key plots uh, and a little bit of a spoilery. Uh, spoiler givers, we're not going to blow the movie for you. So the big key element for the film for me is at about three quarters of the way through the film, there's a revelation that a relationship that he's been in with his neighbour, who he'd like, he met, like he bumped into a few times, then the, she came to the door and said, you've been stalking me, and they arranged a date. They went on a date, and it's a happy romance, and he's got some happiness in his life. He imagined the whole thing. At that point, I realised that the whole film is the Joker's narrative to justify all of his actions. Right. Which makes you go back to the early moments when you were sympathising with him because he was getting, like, a billboard stolen off him and he chases the kids who got it and they beat him up. Was that billboard stolen? Because his boss was told by the shop owner that he just walked off with the billboard. So maybe he did a fight club on himself and he creates this false reality around him. There's the key moments, like, which is the start of the killings on the subway that starts all this violence and, like, uprising against the rich. We're led to believe, by the way it's shot and the way it's shown, that it was a reaction to being beaten up by three rich guys who were drunk and, like, picking on him because he was dressed as a clown. Now that we have this whole thing of, like, you have to question everything, maybe that didn't happen that way round, and he actually confronted them and just murdered someone on the subway. Every element of the film needs to be re-scrutinised. And at that point, he's no longer... I mean, you mentioned anti-hero. He can be seen as an anti-hero. On the surface level, you can see it as an anti-hero uprising. But when you start to go, oh, wow, we have to doubt everything that he's told us to this point. He's no longer an anti-hero. He's the criminal psychotic of Joker that has always been a criminal psychotic in every representation. Absolutely. The only there's a reason he always gets locked in Arkham Asylum. He's criminally psychotic. He's mentally unstable. He's deranged and he thinks that he's doing good things. He's clearly not. Anyone, there's people who are like saying like, you know, he's, you know, I can relate to him. If you can relate to this character, I really am concerned about you and you need to go and seek help because he kills people indiscriminately. You don't see some deaths, but they're suggested. Mm. There's some assaults that are suggested. He's not a nice character by the time at the end of the film comes when you look back on how he's actually acted and put it into a different context. There's um, suggestions towards the end of the film that he's just stopped taking his medication. However, any moments that we see with him playing with his medication early in the film, you never see him take the medication. You just see him playing with empty bottles and two pills. How, how many years has he just been playing with two pills? He's been off the deep end since before the film began. And that's how I've started perceiving it. I can't wait to go back and rewatch the film from that context and start to see the different ideas that you can get from it. Yeah, you know, I might be completely wrong, but um, I, I picked this up as soon as like I'd watched it. And that was what I was processing in the taxi home after watching it. And then the next day went online and found other people theorizing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that whole scene with him, the relationship being false has to have been put there for that very reason to get you to suddenly go. This narrative is skewed. I The elements I did like is... is... The, the Joker is an agent of chaos, and, and that came out of it. And I almost wanted to see that expanded. I was more, I'd, I'd have been more interested in, in, in seeing building up the, the movement that, that follows him or, or follows the Joker. But it is about disenfranchisement, uh, disenfranchised people finding a way out. Now, the Joker 
for me, wasn't the clown prince of crime, which no. he, he should be for a Joker. But this is, is is the point of the movie. It's an interpretation. You know, these aren't gospels. <laughs> they are uh, an artist's interpretation of of that character, and that was what was bold about it. Uh, for the the film does have faults, and for the faults it does have, you cannot get away from the fact that they have tried to do something absolutely unique with with this character, and therefore unique with with comic book movies. At the heart of it, it is a comic book movie. It's a, it's a character that we've grown up with. He's the most recognizable villain that uh, a supervillain out out of all, the whole of comics. He's the one. He's he's had so many different interpretations. Uh, the 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 look of him, the fact that he he is chaos, is is the uh, antithesis of, of who Batman is. He is the most recognizable supervillain. You can put any villain in front of uh, in front of my mom and she will pick out the Joker. So I, I'm, I think it's a very, very bold film. It doesn't always work for me. Uh, there's the elements that I'm, I'm, uh, I have to think about. Uh, as I said, I've only just walked out of a screen. Yeah, you've not time to settle me. Um, so a lot of what I'm talking about is I'm free-forming here, folks. But um, it, it's, it's, it's a definitely a strong film. I think there are Oscar nominations. Uh, that should be in, in the pipeline for Wakwayan Phoenix's performance and I think for Todd Phillips. Interested to know what other people think about it, get in touch with us uh, via our Twitter page or email us. It's, a, it's an interesting, very, very bold film. And I don't think, as far as I'm, I'm aware, there has been a mainstream comic book property which has been dealt with in such a way. I know one of the problems that you had was regard to the representation of Thomas Wayne. Yeah. Who's portrayed within this film as being a bit of a dick, a rich, yeah. a rich dick who looks down on the people below him. There's like a little like news clipping of him like talking about like the lower classes as clowns. However, again, drawing reference to that this is Arthur's skewed perspective, maybe that wasn't actually what was said. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a bit at the start of the fil- film. Where it becomes a fantasy where he, step in, steps he into. is in the audience of a game show and it plays out. So maybe every time that he sees something, he imagines something different. Yeah. Because, you know, the the comic book history, the film history, everything history-wise that we've ever seen, seen about Thomas Wayne is that he was a really good benefactor towards, like, the homeless, the disenfranchised. He put money into the community to rebuild elements of Gotham. He was always looking towards, like, people like with less wealth than him and going, I've got more wealth than I need. I'm going to invest in you guys. I want you. He'd, rec- he'd hire people from like poor impoverished societies and try to give them a better way of life. And that's the Thomas Wayne that we've always been told. So to suddenly see him in this jarring context, I mean, it initially jarred me. Mm. And I was like, I, I don't like this. Th- no, I didn't. This, this is stepping on the toes of like what's been established. But like I say, it was when that revelation came and I started to question what I'd seen up to that point. I was like, right. So basically, Arthur and his mother have been harassing this guy for years, and we don't know to what extent they've been doing it. We just know they're banned from communication with the Wayne family because his mother had some fantasy obsession um, Mm. that she had bore his child. There's so much to then go back and reanalyze, and that's why that second watch needs to be done. Yeah, I totally agree. I will see it again. I I think, you know, like I said, it's a film that makes you question things. It's a film that makes you think and a film that provokes discussion and everyone will have their own interpretation of it. I never want them to do a sequel. No, I hope they don't. Uh, there's no room for a sequel. Joaquin Phoenix has said that like him and Todd Phillips have talked about like, you know, working together and possibly like delving into the joke again. Don't. That yeah, joke tale is a set standalone. We don't want it running the risk of being diminished by explaining too much. It's a film that leaves questions. It's a film that gets your brain chewing it over. If they, in the next film, go, well, actually, this is what happened. Oh, well, you've just blown the film. 
Yeah, you've got to. You, I don't. I can't see where they can take the character on the basis of what we've seen. I never say never, but uh, from what what I've seen so far, I can't see without getting into the other territory of because it, it, there is a set off point for uh, for Bruce Wayne's story, which was a surprise and and again slightly unwelcome for me. I'd rather it seem be more self contained. The fact that it was set in Gotham was just enough. Arkham Asylum's mentioned, but at some point you have to, if you're going to carry on with this character as the way it's perceived in this film, you know, you are, you you will tiptoe into other elements of, of the Batman legend. And I, I'd rather not, I'd rather see it uh, standalone. I've seen random theories thrown out um, that, you know, because Bruce Wayne's quite young in this, that, you know, if this is the Joker that he goes against, then this Joker's going to be like in his late 70s by the time he's fighting yeah, Batman. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen people suggest that, well, this is a character that inspires the joke of the Batman. Yeah, I can see that. I've also seen a a theory that the only real element of this film is the very last scene in Arkham when he's talking to the psychiatrist. And the rest of it is all his fictional account of how he got into asylum. I could see that as well. And that's a wrap for this bonus episode. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at some of the old reviews. Uh, if you've listened to them before, I hope you've enjoyed this bit of nostalgia. If you've never listened to us before, get subscribing, like, comment, share. Give us some opinions on films yourself. Head over to Twitter, at Filmfile UK, and there you can engage directly with us and take part each Sunday night in our weekly hashtag MTOS Movie Talk on Sunday Twitter chats, which is 10 questions about a particular topic related to film. It could be a director, it could be an actor, it could just be how you watch films. Anyway, thank you for listening, guys. Have a good one. <laughs>